welcome to Tell Me About Your Life, etc. Series 1, Episode 6, Nightmare from a Homicide, Part 2. Jan continues to talk about the guests she has on her podcast and how she feels about them. I consider them my tribe. <laughs> They're like, they, they understand, I understand them, and they need a platform to talk about what they've been through and how they dealt with it so that they can help others who are going through it initially because our homicide rate's gone up in the last two years. It used to be 18,000 on average per year. Now it's 20 to 21, uh, most in, of course, the major city areas. So, And for every homicide in the United States, it's been estimated that there are between eight and 10 people that are deeply and immediately impacted. Well, that's a lot of people. And today there are very few resources. So that was my goal in both the book and the podcast is to create more visibility and understanding of homicide survivors for homicide survivors and their close friends who might want to help but don't have a clue, as well as trying to dispel myths about homicide, such as you get a trial. That is so not true. 95% of homicides are resolved with plea bargains. It's extremely rare to get a trial. Another uh, is that you spend a long, long time behind bars. And that's not true either. The average national rate is nine years because of plea bargains. So I like to dispel myths. I like to meet people that are these resilient, strong people that have not had much of a helping hand and to raise them up and encourage them. And there was one young woman, I, I her, her particular episode was off the charts in terms of its popularity. It's now heard in 10 countries. And it was the first time she'd ever told her story. And she's a victim of familiacide. Actually, her mother killed her brother when she was four. And uh, there's very little research on that. So sometimes I will plead to people out there doing research to do more research in certain areas where we don't really know much. Because most research out there is on the perpetrator and not the long-term aftershocks of crime. Wow, that's quite a quite a story you've been through. It's hard to imagine all that you've been through and the repercussions of that, you know, what you went through and how it affected your entire life. And mm -hmm. I know you're doing a podcast, so have you found it emotionally helpful to you to talk to these other ones? I find it, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I find it confirming. It's like, oh, you too, huh? Okay. I didn't know that was a common experience till I interviewed so many people. And I learned from them. I learned about Marcy's Law and I've learned about the term accompaniment and I've learned about victim advocacy. A lot of this was not around back in 1985 when it was my turn to do this. So it's been educational. It's impacted me more that way than emotionally because I decided before I wrote the book and before I did my podcast, I wanted to get my ducks in a row first. I did not want to use my listeners nor my readers for therapy. I don't think that's right. That's not what they're there for. And But it's gratifying. I mean, I feel good that I'm allowing them a chance to talk about and appreciate what they've been through and to raise them up because so many of them, have, like I did, just crawl into a cave and put a rock in front of it. They don't want to talk about it. They know they're speaking with somebody who understands it because, you know, been there. What would you say are some of the common things you found? You know, like you said, you kind of have those aha moments with people. What would you say would be something that maybe some of us who haven't been through wouldn't realize that maybe you need or maybe something you're going through that we could try to be more supportive with? That's a good question. I think two things jump out to my mind. 
very common among everybody I spoke with. One is the stigma associated with being a homicide survivor. You become the poster child for crime in your neighborhood. So does your household. And you're treated as such and you feel like you're radioactive. And it's not helpful to people to treat them that way, which feeds into your second question. What homicide survivors need more than anything is not at the beginning when it all breaks loose. When it all breaks loose, there is an abundance of support and a gushing of advice, requested or not. And people are in a a state of being overwhelmed and numb, so they can't even make use of half of the stuff that's going on because they won't remember it. They're sleep deprived. They're in shock. What they really, really need is two things. What they need, number one, is for you to check on in on them months later, maybe even the anniversary of the death. Put it in your phone. Like I did my friend, his son was killed at Pulse nightclub. And every July 12th, I put it in my phone to call him. It's an easy thing to do. But he said, you're the only one that does because it's everybody goes back to their life. And when you check in on them, mention the person's name once in a while. Don't think that by not mentioning it, you're helping the person. You're not. It's the reverse is true because they feel like everybody's forgotten. That person wasn't important. You need to talk about it could be something as simple as, you know, I was eating a taco the other day and that reminded me of your brother because he always liked taco. It doesn't have to be anything profound, but just to let them know that you haven't forgotten is very helpful. A little story maybe that they don't know about that you could, ah, I never told you about the time we went fishing and thus and so happened. So check in on them. And then the, uh, the other thing you can do, which is especially in the beginning, I'd say the first few months, do not say to them, call me if you need something, because they're not gonna. Instead, say to them, if you're well enough acquainted with them, say to them, you know, I'm going to come over and I'm going to take your cat to the vets. I know you're worried about her getting up on her shots and I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to take your tires in and get them rotated. I'm going grocery shopping and I'm going to do it for the both of us, which is very helpful because you do not want to go in public when this happens. But if you do something concrete like that, I had a friend who I happened to be standing next to when she got a phone call that her husband had committed suicide. And she was a very large woman and very frightened about how in the world was she going to keep her grass cut? She kept talking about, I don't know how I'm going to cut my grass this summer. And he always did it. And so I paid for her landscaping for the summer. Had I said to her, call me if you need something, she would have never said, would you pay for my landscaping? That wouldn't have happened. So if you can be the eyes and ears and say, I'm going to do thus and so for you, it could be very, very helpful, very meaningful, and much more likely to be accepted than simply say, call me if you need something. Because the, they don't know what they need. They don't have a clue at the beginning. That's really good advice. I was also wondering, regular death, that's usually an illness or this or that, but obviously with homicide, that person's life was cut short, really often for no real, you know, reason, obviously. How does forgiveness play into all of this? Do you think forgiveness has, in your experience in talking to different ones, there must be a certain amount of anger and rage at the person who killed your family member or your friend? Quite, it's quite a controversial topic among homicide survivors because some feel it's an additional expectation and burden placed on them. It'd be like saying to somebody whose house was broken into, so how are you and the burglars getting along now? You made up for it, you know? Why this expectation that you have to forgive them? I never forgave my husband, and here's the reason. One, he never asked for it. And two, I believe people have to earn it. I don't believe in wiping somebody's slate clean so that they you, you can make yourself feel better 
for forgiving them because what you're doing in the process is simply making it easier for them to go do it again because, well, she'll forgive me if she did it once, she'll did it twice, right? On the other hand, there are people who feel that is important to them and they can't move ahead until they do forgive and that they they feel if they don't, they'll be bitter and anger for the, anger for the rest of their life. My position is that between those two alternatives, there's a third option, which is indifference. And that's where I'm at. I don't, I'm not angry at him. I'm not forgiving him. I, he's in my rear view. He has long ago been in my rear view. I don't think about him unless I'm asked. He's not a part of my life. And it's happened a long time ago. I, I don't give it much thought anymore. It's irrelevant. He might as well be a stranger at this point to me. It's just not in my worldview. But even at the time, it never occurred to me to forgive him. It wasn't important to me because I was so busy treading water. I didn't even have the luxury of thinking about that. I was still busy trying to put out fires, so to speak. But, but some people do feel that's important. So you, you'll get the whole range of people that will really make an effort to do that and others that will feel like I do. Do you think like if you compare it to, say, a regular person passing away, do you think the process of you know, getting over it takes longer. And I'm not saying anyone ever gets over the death of a loved one, but do you think it's more complicated, more complex, and it might take more emotional processing to kind of like you say, you've been able to put it in the rearview mirror. Do you think that just takes a little bit longer with this? I think if you have to attend to your biopsychosocial needs, I think it depends how much support you get. I think it depends if the perpetrators are caught. One of the complicating factors is for many people, by the time it comes to trial or a plea bargain and it's in the hands of the court system, it's about the time you've just started to turn a corner and now the band-aid's been ripped off and you got to go through it all over again. If it's a massive homicide like what happened with Pulse nightclub, every anniversary it gets rebacked in the news and so you can't ever put it in your rear view in, in, in a way. I think there are there is overlap, but there are differences. I mean, people that die of a natural death of an illness, there's not a court case involved, and it's not so publicized. If you look at an obituary, it says very little about the person. It won't even probably say what they died of. It'll just said, you know, they passed away in their sleep or something like that. When you are a homicide survivor, your entire life is dumped in the news. When it came to my situation, they showed up at the morgue. They showed up at his funeral. They the Free Press published maps to my house. They showed up in my waiting room of my office. Your life is totally publicized. And because of that, people who follow the story tend to claim it as their own. They feel like they know you and they feel entitled to know more. And it creates this sense of media frenzy around you that is so intrusive and so wrong because the media will say, what's well, the public's right to know? And I always say, well, where's the balance between that and the right to privacy? Because these are real human beings that were thrown into this, this turmoil who don't expect it to happen. Nobody does, but it's an equal opportunity club. Also, I know that in yourself, you're working on a workbook um, besides your book, which was A Life Divided. And what mm -hmm. is the workbook going to be about? I'm writing a workbook, kind of like a manual or survivor's guide to homicide survivors. What I did is I went back and I listened to every single one of my episodes back to back one night and I took careful notes and I did a lot of reading and I was looking for themes like what are the common obstacles and 
and strategies and needs of people in this situation. And I decided to put them in a sequential order, starting with the death notification, which sometimes happens appropriately, like it did mine. Sometimes it happens on Facebook. Sometimes it happens by a knock on the door at your neighbor who witnessed it. It could come in any way, any short, any way it can come to you. So I thought I'd start out with a workbook talking about the death notification, dealing with funeral homes, dealing with the media, dealing with crime scene cleanup, and all the way through long-term repercussions so that people have a blueprint of what to expect, like not just in terms of information in the body of the text of the chapter, but in the back, I'm going to have a glossary of terms like the average person would not know what an Alfred plea is. But it's important when your case goes to trial. They might not know what a victim advocate is and what their job is. That also is important. So I put a glossary in the back and I also put uh, several pages of resources like for, let's say, the death penalty or crime scene cleanup companies, any number of resources that a person might need, a 24-hour hotline for suicide victims and so forth. And, uh, you know, it's still in the works. (laughs) I don't know when it'll be out, but I'm trying to make it very brief as I can, but yet chock full of information because people in this situation don't have a lot of concentration. They can't retain it. They can only deal with it in little bits and pieces. So I'm trying to make it as quick a reading as I can, but also as accurate as I can so that they can pick it up and use it when they need to and skip over the parts that don't apply to them. That sounds like a great idea. That's fantastic that you're working on that. And how are you? Thank you. On a personal note, how are you coping with, you know, helping other people? You're obviously very busy. Do you have things that help you decompress? Obviously, you're listening to people's stories. That can be a little bit stressful. I love my dogs. I have two St. Bernards. (laughs) I'm constantly cleaning up their hair. (laughs) Um, But I love gardening. I love with a a capital L. I love it. And it really was the, the, I really came into fruition when I traveled to Guatemala. I had never thought of gardening as extensively as I did when I was in that country. And I was determined somehow, some way when I got home to adapt my home as much as I could to a Guatemalan garden. The big difference is that in Guatemala, it's a part of your house. It's not a separate thing out there in the yard. The house is built around the garden. So I had a wall removed and I had a doorway put in and the garden comes and it's like a walk. I made a covered porch and then you walk right into the garden from my house. So it's part of the house with a wall around it. And I spend every minute I can out there. In fact, now I'm a, um, I have a social group that I meet with gardening tips today. I just posted one about water saving uh, tips. Uh, I do that. I travel when I can, but COVID screwed that over. I, I want to make every continent and I'm short too. I want to go to South America and I want to go to Antarctica. Fortunately, my closest friend is from Chile. So I want to go to Chile with her and go to Antarctica and then I will have covered all the continents. So that's exciting. And I love photography still. I've um, entered contests. I've won some awards in that. I love taking photographs of people that, that tell you about the person, not a JCPenney kind of photograph, but one that you can look at the person's face and kind of get a sense who they are. I like that very much. I also like photographing things that people miss. I love it when I say, you know, to my husband, because I remarried, I'll say, here's a picture from yesterday. And I'll go, when was that? And I go, it was right outside the window. (laughs) And uh, you didn't notice that, did you? (laughs) No, that's really cool. So I photo, I do photography, the gardening, uh, clean up after my dogs and writing, I'm working on the book. My friends, of course, are important too. And I stay busy. Um, I don't have busy. enough hours in the day <laughs> to do all the things I want to do, but 
Uh, my cancer treatment's behind me. I, I, I will never be considered cured, but I'm doing very well. Uh, it, there is no cure for multiple myeloma. So I, I see my oncologist periodically and I have that to deal with. So it keeps me a little busy, but I'm doing okay there too. Uh-huh. And I did have to give up weightlifting. I was not able to continue that, which really frustrated me because after you go through chemo, your bones are really brittle. And he said, you don't want any more broken bones. And I'm like, I love weightlifting. I know. And it saved my life. I know. But <laughs> oh, I know. That's hard. Um, it's hard to give things up. That's for sure. You know, yes. I appreciate you taking the time. You're such a busy person. So thank you so much for taking your time to share sure. your story. And I'm excited about your new workbook coming out. And I appreciate so much all that you're doing to help other victims. So if somebody wants to look into the uh, resources, I would have uh, direct them to www.jancantyphd.com, and it's all in one spot. Great. Thank you so much. The views expressed by the guests do not necessarily represent the views or lifestyle of the creator of this podcast. Thank you.